0: for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills,
1: he's got two things in his hand: pipe
0: wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new; they yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built up bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, aka Dr. Daniel Pierce. Of U N C Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and
1: their battles
0: with the revenuers.
1: He wrote about one of his experiences of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn. Uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran <laughs> off the boat. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steel when Junior got tangled up in a in a barbed bar wire fence. <laughs> so
0: check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Same Vault
2: Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At polepositionmag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at polepositionmag.com. That's polepositionmag.com.
0: Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history.
2: Presented by Qware, Maintain Excellence. Nice says, Dad, why don't you fly right seat? Let Sam fly left seat. I'm gonna sit back here and have a beer with my boys. I lost my best friend. Ernie was adamant. I am not here to replace Davey Allison. And Robert and I jumped out of the car, and Steve came running over and said, guys, don't go over there. It's not good.
3: The day NASCAR and all of us associated in anyway with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade.
0: And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault podcast presented by QWare. And, Steve, do you know what happened 47 years ago today?
3: Well, several things, Rick, but why don't you tell me one of them?
0: Now, shocking, it has nothing to do with NASA. It was not an Apollo launch, it didn't have anything to do with astronauts going into space. So, that kind of narrows it down a little bit. Yeah, well, right now, I haven't got any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, forty-seven years ago today, according to our friend NASCAR Man on Twitter, the last American hero debuted. How about that
3: with Jeff Bridges?
0: Your favorite NASCAR movie?
3: That's right. I was now, on the I don't set. Know why? I was <laughs> on the set at Martinsville <laughs> when they were filming there, and uh, had a lot of fun uh, watching them film that racing scenes. Uh, as I remember. Neil Soapy Castles, very popular independent driver of the day. He was a guy responsible for angling up all the cars and directing the action on the track. And those guys were going about 25, 35 miles an hour around Martinville Speedway. But when the movie came out, man, they were flying around <laughs> that track. That was one aspect of it that I enjoyed. I enjoyed talking to Jeff Bridges. I uh, had a nice interview with him. Uh, on the movie set there at Martinsville and uh, talking with Clay Earls about it. And Clay told me, you won't believe this, but I had to join the actors' union because I got two or three lines in this thing, and they made me join that union. So he paid his union dues and got into it. And then several years after that, when the movie was shown on television or something like that, there come a check for Clay Earls because he got residuals from that movie. Whenever it was shown. How about that?
0: Did it cover the Sam Clay?
3: <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Clay was between me and Clay. That's for sure. <laughs> Sam Clay, folks, it's it's not your highest grade bourbon, but <laughs> but that's what it is. Old Sam Clay bourbon.
0: Steve, I'm glad that we got a laugh out of the intro because I'm going to be honest with you, this is probably going to be one of the most emotional episodes that we have ever produced because in the second installment of the interview with Larry McReynolds, he is going to talk about the heartbreaking loss of his best friend, Davey Allison. And then he talks about how Robert Yates Racing started to pick up the pieces with Ernie Irvin and that was before Ernie himself was critically injured in that terrible crash at Michigan, barely a year after that team had lost Davy. And then he talked about Ernie really, really, really wanting to come back a lot earlier than what he eventually did. And then Steve finally, <laughs> he talked about a deal that if it had in fact went through This would have been a deal that would have turned NASCAR upside down. Steve, try this one on for size. Dale Earnhardt driving the number 28 Ford for Robert Yates Racing.
3: Are you kidding me? That would have been absolutely stunning.
0: That would have rocked this sport to its very foundation.
3: Oh, yeah. No doubt about
0: it. I don't know how serious the discussions happened to be but the fact that there were discussions is in fact in and of itself mind-boggling.
3: Oh you yeah, well, are you kidding? I mean I didn't think Dale Earnhardt was a Ford guy. I uh, found it very hard to believe he was seriously consider driving for Gates and Ford. He was just not a Ford guy.
0: Now Steve I'm going to go ahead and put this out on the table. And if I get myself in trouble with the Earnhardt legions, uh, that's fine. But I don't know if there were enough zeros on that check. uh, It might have (laughs) happened.
3: Well, (laughs) enough zeros can swear a person, no doubt about that. But I still find it difficult to believe. Those talks got very serious.
0: In our second segment, we are going to go back to the November 3rd, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. And this week, we are not going to discuss the whole issue. We're not going to break down page by page, article by article, everything that was in this. But we are going to pay tribute to Morris Petty, Maurice Petty. Uh, Everybody pronounces it Morris, so we're going to go with Morris. So he passed away this weekend. He passed away. Early Saturday morning. He was more commonly known as Chief. He, of course, was the brother of Richard Petty and the engine builder for so, so, so many of Richard's victories. And this week, we are going to go to a column that you wrote in the aftermath of that big, huge, controversial penalty at Charlotte in October of 1983.
3: Yeah, that was, uh, that was a very, very uh, stunning development that uh, Richard Petty won the race by three seconds so over, over Daryl Walsh, I believe, it was. And after the race and post-race inspection, it was discovered that the engine in his car was way beyond the NASCAR limit of 358 cubic inches. It was something like 389 cubic inches. It wasn't even close. And therefore, the victory was tainted. Now, NASCAR didn't disqualify Richard. He kept the win, but he lost the 104 points he earned for the victory, and he lost $35,000 through a fine. It was very controversial because even a lot of petty fans were saying, man, you got to give the win back. you got to give the win back. Wasn't a very pleasant time for Richard or Morris.
0: And Steve, the gist of your column was that Chief actually showed up at a dinner honoring that year's winners of the Union 76 Rockingham Pit Crew Championship, despite that penalty. I love the way that you came at it. He had this cloud hanging over him, but the gist of your column was that he was still Morris. He was still Chief. He was still going to be the go-to guy in the garage he was still going to be the engine builder he was still going to stand up for what he thought to be right
3: well he was a different chief in the fact that nobody would have expected him to be there i mean it wouldn't have been surprising to me if he was just huddled up at many enterprises and never show his face you know but no he was there and he was very very outgoing pleasant funny chatting with people something no one expected after that incident at Charlotte. And I decided I was going to take advantage of it.
0: Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Elvin Chase Barrett, Florian Dvorski, Joshua McKinney, and we also have PayPal support from Hallie Emery. And Steve, Hallie, this is at least the, I would say at least the second third, fourth time that he's helped us out on PayPal. he
3: have been on the Zoom cast with us. Yes, and he's
0: a regular on yeah. the Zoom cast. He has a YouTube channel called High Octane Cards. He will open up the NASCAR cards and go through them and just talk about the different cards he gets. So it's actually kind of intriguing to watch it. It's almost like watching a game show to see what cards he
3: gets.
0: (laughs) And he actually opened up a box of 1991 tracks cards. And when he came across a Steve Wade card, it was like the jackpot, man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but uh... (laughs) so Elvin Florian, Joshua Hallie. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Y'all are an important part of this journey that we're taking with the scene vault and the scene vault podcast. I appreciate it. Thank y'all you for your help. Support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb. And if you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Vault Podcast. Or if you would rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at PayPal.me slash the SeamVault Podcast. So, Larry, you have 1992, and as bad as things got, there was always a tomorrow for Davey and the race team. July 1993, the world comes to an end. Is there any way to put into words what that day two or three
2: and the next week and the next month was like for you? Yeah, the thing on July thirteenth, 1993, I, I, I did—I personally didn't just lose the driver that helped put me on the NASCAR map that I was winning races with and, and contending for championships. That was minuscule. I lost my best friend. You, you know, in October of 1991, Linda and I and Liz and Davey, because our two boys, Robbie and Brandon, were just a few months apart, we had them baptized together, and Linda and I are Robbie's godparents, and Davey and Liz are Brandon's godparents. Hmm. We, our friendship was beyond what you could imagine, so the, the, the driver-crew chief relationship was just minor. But, you know, 93 started off rocky. Um, it was a lesson learned. We were so invincible in 1992 that I think we got, for lack of better words, we got fat and lazy during the offseason. We didn't work really? to get, We didn't work to get better. We okay. worked. don't get me yeah. wrong. Yeah. We worked yeah. night and day, but we just felt like we're ready for 93. We, we, we kicked our butt in '92 with torn-up race cars and a driver that was hurt the majority of the year. All we need is a fresh sheet of paper, and we're ready. And we even went to Daytona and looked like we didn't even know what was going on. Now we did mess around and come back and win Richmond, which ended up being Davy's last win. But just the whole spring was just discombobulated. We, just, we were trying stuff, and this didn't work. It's almost like we started throwing darts. But we were trying to play catch-up because we didn't work to get better. We rested on our laurels between 92 and 93. And the sad part is we took this brand-new race car to Loudon, and there was no question we hit on something. You know, had it not been for a late-race caution, we are probably going to win that race. But it was a car with the combination we were running that it had to have long runs. And I knew when that damn caution came out yeah. with just a handful of laps to go that we were toast. And we ended up finishing third to to Rusty and Mark. But still, we left there going, finally. We finally have honed in on what's been missing. And Robert and Joey Knuckles and Raymond Fox and myself, there were three or four or five of us, we did this on a pretty regular basis. Davey would leave Hueytown, stop in Charlotte, and pick us up in his plane, and we'd fly to the track. And then coming home, we'd fly back. He'd land in Charlotte, let us off, and he'd fly on to, to Hueytown. So I, seen, I, just, I saw something different. You don't realize it when it's happening, but then when you reflect back how different this was. Because normally we'd get on that plane, and Eli Goad was on the plane with us we get on that plane, and, and Bobby was on there, and, you know, David would get left seat, Sam Mance would get right seat, and we'd all get in the back and fly home. And we got on that plane, and Davey was pretty darn happy about this run we had had because, again, we were in a little bit of a funk. And he says, Dad, why don't you fly right seat, let Sam fly left seat? I'm going to sit back here and have a beer with my boys. And it's like I've never I'd never seen this. I had never flown Davy's Allison's plane. That he wasn't flying left seat. So we sat back there and we cut up a little bit, but we we talked about Loudon, Pocono coming up. Maybe we want to take this same car to Pocono. You know that we just ran at Loudon, and um, we got we got to um, Charlotte. And all of us except Sam and Davy and Bobby and Eli got off. And Davey and I always talked around 11 or 12 o'clock on Monday. And he says, hey, before I forget it, are you okay if we talk Tuesday? I'm going to fly up to Talladega tomorrow and watch David Bonnet, Neil's son, do an architect. I said, yeah, we'll talk Tuesday. I said, I think we got a pretty good plan. I said, because we've talked for the last two hours. But I said, yeah, let's talk Tuesday. And, um, you know, we're in the shop. And... Remember Robert walking through that door like he was yesterday, and he was as white as that door right there, and he almost couldn't speak. And, you know, Robert, he had that way of rubbing his hands through his hair, and he says, You need to come in the office. And he said, Davey's in trouble. Well, my initial feeling was, Oh God, what has he said or done now? He had <laughs> yeah. a way sometimes yeah. of getting himself in a little bit of a crack about <laughs> saying something he shouldn't have said. Yeah. And he said, no, he's crashed that helicopter. And yeah, you know, we, Robert and I and our two wives, Felix Sabatis was good enough to let us use his plane and we flew down there. And, you know, Liz, throughout the night until he passed away, she asked me several times, do you want to go see him? And I said, I don't. Uh, I want to. I want to remember him like he got off that airplane or like when I got off that airplane because I just knew he was not going to make it. I wasn't giving up faith, but I just knew with what those doctors were saying. And I said, I don't remember. I don't want to remember him laying on a, a hospital bed with tubes and wires just being kept alive. That's not how I want to remember Davey Allison. I want to remember him sitting in that airplane having a beer and him aggravating the hell out of me about different things. That's how I want to remember him. And if I thought it would have made a difference, heck yeah, I'd have went back there and saw him. But I knew it wasn't. And I'm so glad and relieved today that I didn't. So Robert and Carolyn and Linda and I fly back to Charlotte um, Monday morning. And Robert and I go straight to the shop. And the guys are at the shop. And I'm sorry, this this would have actually been uh, Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday morning. And... um, The guys were there to shop just kind of lost, you know. So we right then made the decision that we would not go to Pocono. I mean, Robert had to make a call to Ford. He had to make a call call to Texaco, but that was a very short conversations. Um, And we just made the decision not to go. And and we knew that he was probably in heaven looking down at us going, you weak dogs. I cannot (laughs) believe y'all are not going to go race. But – he wasn't the one that was going to have to be in Pocono and deal with this with tears in your eyes and try to prepare a race car for a driver to drive off in a corner, 170, 80 miles an hour. Just couldn't do it. Our heart was not going to be in it. And we're glad we made that decision. So we go to U.S. Airways. Actually, that's who was doing all the charter stuff back then. They they actually created a charter flight. It was called Flight 28. And... uh. We flew to Birmingham and, and, you know, had the funeral on Thursday. Um, flew back, and, and it was so weird, Rick. You know, none of us were related. Robert and Doug, of course, were. But we gathered at Robert's house Thursday night, all of us, our wives, our kids, just like a family gathers when a, when a family member passes away. And that's what we needed. That was, that was the beginning of our healing was getting together as a family, and small race team, engine shop and all. I don't know if there were even 20 of us, but we gathered at Robert's house, and from Thursday through Monday, I just shut it down. I did not watch the Pocono race. Um, just Linda and I and the two kids just hung out at home with no phones, no nothing, Just just trying to begin this healing process. And I'll be honest, did the thought ever cross my mind? Do I want to do it anymore? You just read my mind. I was going to ask that. Yeah. I did. It's like, okay, not only have I lost this race car driver, I lost my best friend. And uh, I don't know, Davey, such a determined individual. And I I remember he would fly that helicopter up there to Charlotte. And he'd say, let's go to lunch in a helicopter. Nope. (laughs) <laughs> Not getting in a helicopter with you, Davey. Why? I got my license. I said you've got your license, but you don't have experience. Wow. You've got a license. I, you got a piece of paper. I said I'll fly around the world three times with you in an airplane because you got experience. You got thousands of hours, but you don't have experience in a helicopter. Wow. Um, after that,
0: at what point did the fog start to lift? And Ernie Irvin, when did he come into the picture? Was he your first choice, or were there maybe other people that you
2: talked to? I, I can't say I really knew. Okay. We were just trying to get through this, and Robbie Gordon, who was perfect to take the Talladega, because Robbie was not in the nucleus of, of, of NASCAR. No, he wasn't. No. And so it's going to take a pretty... Interesting, different individual to go to Talladega. Okay, Talladega, Davey's home, (laughs) where he was killed, to run his 28 car. And we wrecked early. And uh, I remember looking at Robert. Robert looked at me and said, we don't want to fix it. We, we, We got a good opportunity to get out of here. And so we loaded up and went back to Charlotte. And, you know, we, we had a, a, a lot of different drivers that, that drove some races, forced Lake Speed, you know, drove some races. And I, I really felt bad for Lake. Lake was great to put in that car. He's so spiritual, always upbeat, not down. He – he, I think we all knew he was probably not our long-term answer, but he was perfect for a short term with with what we were going through as a race team. And I really felt bad for Lake because we had went to Darlington and – Lake runs good at Darlington, as we know. That's where he won that race. And we really had a good test. But in the interim, between that Darlington test and checking in at Darlington the following week is when the thing got to put together with Ernie. I think that all that all kind of started in early, mid-August, conversation with, with Ernie. Uh, and it was really instigated by Ford. Um, and, you know, when Robert ran it by me, I went, that's a no-brainer. Are you kidding me? We can get Ernie Irvin? I said, you know, and a lot of people were anti-Ernie. The Allisons were anti-Ernie. Were they Bobby really? Allison was really against okay. it. wow. Um, but I felt like that we could calm him down. We would give him a fast race car where he wouldn't have to maybe overextend equipment. And that we could we could lasso this this wild bucking bronco, which is <laughs> about what he was. <laughs> uh, and you know, when we went to Darlington, we had his seat in the car, but he still when we ch- the garage opened Thursday morning, I think it was back then, he still was not out of his contract with oh, Morgan. I remember clerk. it wasn't yeah, just a yeah. handful of minutes before practice that he was released, but it didn't take me long to realize this is exactly what we need. You know, he's so different from Davey, night and day difference. But, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. And we ended up finishing fourth or fifth in that Darlington race. And that's when the, the track was flip flop back the yeah. old way, and we were yeah. pitting almost right at the start-finish line on what's now the backstretch. And halfway through that race, you know, Ernie said very little on, on radio. He didn't talk on radio much at all. But he was running behind Earnhardt, and he – Right at start finish line, he picked the w- rear wheels of that three car up off the ground. <laughs> Earnhardt looked like an octopus in there. So we finished fourth or fifth. I think yeah. we finished fifth. And after the race, I said, "Man, you had you had that no three car jacked up there one time." He said, "Did you see it?" He said, "I tried to time it where it'd be right in front of y'all." <laughs> but that was just that was just Ernie Irvin. But the neatest thing that. I'll ever remember is we go to Martinsville, and he'd been driving the car, what, three or four races, and we sat on the outside of the front row and, and led that thing all day long. And it was hot, God almighty. Yes, it was. It was 95-something yeah. degrees with probably about 110 degrees heat yeah. index. Yeah. And we, we won the race. I think we might have led over 400 laps, make close to it. You um, whooped them, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, yeah. Uh, it was one of those days when you felt like the only – group that could beat you is if you beat yourself. And I remember we were pitting right down near the end of of the front stretch. That was back in the course of the two pit roads. And when when Ernie took the checkered flag and was coming back around and was going to come down pit road, because Victory Lane back then was kind of down in the middle of one and two, I saw somebody walk out on pit road, and I kind of looked. It's Bobby Allison. And he went out there and did like that to Ernie. And I went... That's exactly what we needed to see. Uh, We wanted the Allisons to be okay with this. Mm -hmm. Bobby Allison knew that's what we needed. And then the other thing was in victory lane, again, so flipping hot. Ernie sat down beside the car most of the victory lane. Unannounced to anybody. Not me, not Robert, not Brian VanderCook, our PR guy. I'm talking nobody. He pulled his uniform top down and his T-shirt said, In memory of Davey Allison. It's like. You didn't know he had it on? Nobody knew it. Really? Nobody knew it. He wow. had put it on when he put his uniform on. And, and, and I mean, it wasn't like when he pulled his top down, he went, you know, look at me. Yeah. He just pulled it down and there it was. And yeah. it's like he couldn't, he, this couldn't work no better. You know, Ernie was adamant, I am not here to replace Davy Allison. I'm here to do my job. You know, he wanted things different. You know, he wanted a different uniform. He wanted a different helmet. We even changed the font of the numbers a little bit in the the Ernie Irvin era. And, of course, then the next week, I mean, I know Truex whipped up on him a few years ago out there at the Coke 600. Uh, I know Kyle Busch whipped up on him. That butt kicking that next week <laughs> at Charlotte. I mean, we led 328 of 334 laps, all but six laps. And the only reason we didn't lead those was through cycle of green flag pit stops. I mean, he sat on the outside of the front row, and I think we took the lead before they got to turn one. And uh, it just it was uh, it was, and I it's like couldn't wait. We still had more races, and we didn't win any more in '93. But it's like, are you kidding me? I wish 1994 started the Monday after the 93 season ended. Yeah. Speaking
0: of 1994, you're rolling along, you're doing well, you're winning races, and going into Michigan, you're 27 points behind Del Earnhardt. So you're neck and neck. It's just the two of you in contention for the championship. You go into the practice, and Ernie has his accident. At what point did you grasp how serious the accident was?
2: Yeah, um, we had had – this just goes to show you how, how stout that we were that year. I think we'd had our worst qualifying effort of the year, and uh, it was probably something like 13th or 14th or something, <laughs> and that was pretty bad to us in our book. That was the thing that I think – which it was the same thing with Davey and I, but Ernie Irvin and I, we went there in our race team, not just Ernie and I. Our race, we wanted to sit on every pole lead every lap, win every practice, and win every race. And anything short of that, we felt like we could we could get better. And, you know, even that Charlotte race, how come we didn't sit on the pole? What, what, what did we miss that kept us off the pole? But I went over to Ernie's Motorhome that night before going back to the hotel, and the car had been um, real loose qualifying. And I said, Ernie, I'm pretty sure... When we untape this thing, that it's probably going to be way too tight, even though it was loose qualifying. But I said, if you're okay, just so we can get our baseline, let's just untape this thing, put some decent tires on it, and just make a 10 or 12 lap run in the morning and let's see where we're at. And of course, back then, the Durham practice was right after the sun came up, the first one. It's like eight or nine o'clock in the morning. and Sure enough, he left Pit Road, and we made a 10-lap run. And I knew, I, I should have called him in about lap six or seven. Stopwatch, it's like, we we're, we got work to do. We're not in not close. And Ernie had this, this technique that if we made a 10-lap run, he'd run 10 laps, and then he'd just carry the mail through one and two, and then he'd come in. He wanted to get one last feel of that race car. And I remember completing the tenth lap. It was real hazy or foggy, and campfires—you know—you you couldn't even hardly see the backstretch. And Raymond Fox was kind of standing up on the platform of the of the deck up top, and I was just kind of standing on the on the floor. And I remember him running ten laps, and I said, Ernie, I said that thing looks like it's way too tight. Bring it on in here. He said 10-4, but he did that deal. He ran through one and two, and all of a sudden, I looked, and I saw the caution flag waving, and I went, Ernie, caution's out, and Raymond Fox looked around me and went, I said, what? He said, it's us, it's us. So, I scaled down off the the hauler, and Robert scaled down off the hauler, and we ran to the NASCAR hauler. I saw Buster Alton just leap out of that that hauler, and you could tell he was in a panic. He was going to the pace car, and I said, Buster, can we ride over there with you? He said, come on, get in now. So we hauled mail around there, and as we pulled up to where the car was, it was sitting just up on the back straightaway, just right against the back wall. And as we pulled up, I went, car did not look bad. Car did not look bad at all. So Steve Peterson with yeah. NASCAR, yeah. he had already got there. And Robert and I jumped out of the car, and Steve came running over and said, guys, don't go over there. It's not good, really. And it's like well, I was in a state of shock. It's like there, there's just no way under the sun this this has happened. We buckle these guys in every week before they say drivers start your engines, and you know there's a risk. This is a practice session, a practice session on Saturday morning. How in the world has this happened? And here's another classic story of camaraderie in that garage area. You said it. Us and the three. Yeah. They take the lead one week, yeah. we take it the next week. Well we're we're kind of definitely miscombobulated. It's like we don't even know which ends up. They're they're airlifting Ernie out of there. Well by the time we finally got all of our bearings and all of our senses and Ernie had left the track on the helicopter and Robert and I are going to go to the hospital The three bunch, because practice had ended, and it was a little – they had unloaded our backup car and put it in our garage stall and put it on jack stands where NASCAR could go ahead and inspect it for us. Did they really? Just trying to help us out. The three guys? The three guys did. Chocolate, I think, led the brigade. Just goes to show you that way that garage area is. I'd never heard that. Yeah, Robert and I, of course, went to the hospital, and we were in the waiting room um, early – Late afternoon, early evening, and, and Dr. Erlinson, I still remember his name, who was the neurologist. Uh, he came in, and, and it was uh, Kim and, and Vic Irvin, Ernie's dad, and myself and Robert. And uh, you, the look on his face, he really didn't need to say much. The look on his face pretty much told us the tale. He says, right now, he said, we're touch and go, but he says, I would say... We're looking at about a twenty or twenty-five percent rate of survival, and um, yeah, it's like, how, could, how in the world can this happen? I asked you this about nineteen ninety-three,
0: and I'm gonna ask it again. Was there ever a point where you said, "Okay, that's it. Mm-hmm. I'm striking the tents," yeah, and and
2: going finding something else to do? If if Ernie Irvin had a passed away. With confidence, I say absolutely yeah. that would have been the yeah. deal i would have I don't think I'd ever laid hands on a race car again, but once we knew at least Ernie was going to survive, we didn't know about his status as far as driving a race car right but then you know he came back to Charlotte and started recovering there, and I remember sitting in his hospital room, and he says. Y'all be there for me, won't you? And I said, Ernie Irvin, that <laughs> yeah. car, and to the best of my ability, every member of that race team will still be there when you come back and start driving again. And that was a pretty, that was a pretty tall. I looked at myself, boy, you just really bit off a lot here. <laughs> I hope yeah. you can live up yeah. to what you just said yeah. to him. But I, I meant it as long as it was things that I could control. Only thing I could control was myself that I would not I would not leave there. And honestly, I got a lot of phone calls, Rick, because I think people knew that I was probably ready to to just start over. You know, Roger Pensky called me, and evidently Roger don't study time zones too close. I think he was in Bangladesh or something, <laughs> three or four o'clock yeah. in the morning, and Roger Pinsky called me in about doing the two car and. I said, Roger, as flattering as this is, and I know I could come over and we could win some races and win a championship, I said, I made a commitment to a man that I'd be here when he comes back, and I'm going to live up to that commitment. And he says, Larry, that's that's as commendable as you can be. It. If you gave a man's word and looked him in the eye, he said, even now, if you told me you'd take this job, I'd tell you not to. So you have
0: another decision to make as far as who to put in the twenty eight car? And I think you told me at one point that Dell Earnhardt actually had an offer mm-hmm. on the table. How serious was that? Was
2: that? I don't. I don't know if it, it was him and Hawk, Don Hawk, just yeah. treading the waters, kicking the tires, seeing what else was out there, or maybe finding something they could go back and leverage. Goodrich and RCR. I never really was involved in those conversations, but you know, it, it became evident in 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 late 94 that that Ernie was going to survive mm-hmm. and that eventually he he was going to be able to come back and drive a race car now in his mind it was going to be for Daytona 500 1995 <laughs> i mean i remember being yeah. at the, the Waldorf yeah. Astoria at the banquet banquet week in at the end of 94 and we were in a suite and it was robert myself and ernie and kim irvin and uh it was somebody from Ford, somebody from Texaco. And we were we were trying to make sure Ernie was involved in our plan. We didn't want to just pick up the phone and say, Ernie, here's who we've got to drive the twenty eight car. We wanted him to be a part of this process. And he looked at us and and Kim was supporting him. It's my car. I'm running Daytona. Yes, that's not what we think is going to happen, yeah, Ernie. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're 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 being told that that's not going to happen. We've got to come up with a one-year plan, and that we're already have started having conversations. If you can come back on into the season, that we will figure out how to field a second car. But you're not going to run the the Daytona five hundred, and it and it was some pretty spirited. Heated conversations because um, he was – I got a contract, and it says I'm no the driver kidding. of Robert Yates Racing, which I applaud to some yeah, degree. Yeah, yeah, It just showed his passion. But a funny story. So we, we come up with a plan with, with Dale Jarrett. I, I'm not sure Ernie was on board with that, but he wasn't going to be on board with anybody just because. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we could have got Mario Andretti, and he was <laughs> going to say, Mario <laughs> yeah. can't drive a race car. So, but that that's okay. You, you understand that. But by the January, Ernie was actually doing pretty good. And we were down there testing at Daytona. And you know how the old garages used to be. And you could kind of spread out in there and not be right on top of each other, you know, because all that was there was Fords. And we were kind of in that one back garage there, kind of in the back. And I can't believe we schemed this plan. Um, pulled our van, team van, in the garage area to kind of block the rest of the garage area. Dale Jarrett made a run, pulled in, got out of the car, and went up in the van. Ernie Irvin came out of the van in a driver's uniform and a helmet and got in the car and ran about five laps at the test at the beginning of 95 at Daytona. Um, I mean, we were probably not very smart doing that. I mean, he had not really been released but he wanted to do it, and you know what? We wanted to let him do it, and uh, I, I never will. When I finally saw that thing coming off the racetrack, it felt like the weight of the world because I'm telling you, if you'd have thumped me, I'd have probably split in half while he was out there making these laps, even though he was just Holy by himself. How man. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. That could have been big. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: So we, we go into 95, and... We're not running very good. I mean, we did go to Daytona and sit on the pole for the 500. We ended up finishing fifth, but it's the damn hardest I've ever fought, I think, for a fifth-place finish in all my life. (laughs) Um, We just were not running good. And I learned a a life lesson in those first eight or ten races. The problem was myself and Dale. I was being hard-headed when I was missing Ernie Irvin. And I was being hard-headed and basically looking at Dale, not verbatim, but for a choice of words, look, we won races, sat on poles and led laps. you got to figure out how to drive this thing. Dale Jarrett, kind of being the meek and humble individual that he is, these guys won races and led laps and sat on poles. I need to figure out how to drive it. We were on a highway to nowhere. And honestly, I was about ready to tell Robert, find somebody else i mean not 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 talking about dale talking about myself right i yeah. can't do it yeah can't do it and it took all the way to the coke 600 weekend before we finally got on track and what it took we were struggling our guts out and robert was trying to help but i don't think he knew how to really help you know robert wasn't one of those owners that got in there and and you need to do this and you need to do this and you that just wasn't robert and Robert says, you want to get somebody to turn or f- run a few laps in the car? And I said, absolutely. He said, let me go down there and get Hutt Strickland to come down here and run it a few laps. So Hutt came down there, and, and I told Dale, I said, Dale, before he gets in it, why don't you kind of tell him what you've been feeling? You know, it wasn't like Dale and I were at each other. We just, we just wasn't communicating about the race car like we needed to be communicating. And so Hut got in there and he didn't run no faster than Dale, which if he had, a, that might have been even a bigger problem. Yeah. But he came in and he says, "Man, this 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 this. Okay, let's go to work on it." We worked on it. So it was it was a wake-up call for me because all I was looking for is somebody to be adamant about what the car's doing and let's go to work on it. And Dale needed to see somebody that was adamant about telling us about the race car. And it fixed us. We go to Pocono, what, two or three weeks later, win the race up there. It's the only race we won, but we were competitive the right. rest of the year. And then, of course, the, the neatest thing is finally Ernie gets to come back, and we get to run uh, Wilkesboro, Phoenix, and Atlanta with him. But Dale took that deal knowing it was just a one-race one deal. But there was a lot of other layers to it. Dale was wanting to do his own cup team. And he knew this was a good bridge to be able to do this. He had his own Xfinity Series team. so Maybe open the door with Ford, maybe? Ford. Yeah. Yates engines. A lot of things. There was a lot of layers that, you know, yeah, he took a gamble and left Joe Gibbs and came to Yates knowing it was a one-year deal and one-year deal only, especially once we knew Ernie was coming back. But Ford was was wearing Robert out about starting a second team. You know, they wanted to really go up against the Hendrick multi-car teams, the the other teams that were doing it back then. Two cars was a lot of cars. But Robert, I'm not doing a second team. His philosophy: when they make victory lane big enough to pull two cars in, I'll look at, I'll think about doing two teams. But economically it made just really good sense. And, you know, Robert and I had a lot of lengthy conversations. I don't know that I was high on him starting a second team, but I knew the support that we could get, that it would only, it would only elevate both race teams. So he made the decision to do it. Dale Jarrett was never on the radar to drive it, never even in a conversation. Hmm. You know, Dale basically had a – uh, a letter of intent from Hooters, he's, 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 starting this, Did he? he's starting his own team. So we're at Michigan in wow. August, ironically Michigan in August, and we had led the race and led it and led it and led it and had an engine failure, 30, 40 laps to go. And Robert and I are in the rental car by ourselves and I still remember it like it was yesterday. We're pulling out of the infield. Robert's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. And we're just about to go through the tunnel and turn one. I said, Robert, we're not very freaking smart. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're running all over the place like a chicken with your head cut off, trying to find a driver for the second car. You're looking everywhere under the sun. We've got the driver we need right here under our nose. And he went, Jarrett? I went, no question. There is no question. I said I realize you're probably surprised hearing that from me, considering what we went through the first third of this year. <laughs> yeah. That man can drive a race car, and and there was other things, you know, that that was getting a little bit iffy on his starting his own deal. Um, a man with three young kids. In a Hooters sponsorship, with what Hooters was going to ask of him, it's not yeah, yeah. doesn't perfectly line up. So yeah. I think there was some apprehension on on he and Kelly's part about this whole Hooters sponsorship deal. So I think by the time we got to Bristol, a week or two after Michigan, Dale was signed to drive the the eighty eight car. But to your question, yeah, I think Don Hawk reached out to to Robert right around halfway through 95, about about Earnhardt. But <laughs> there was two stipulations. He didn't want to drive no 88 car. He wanted to drive that 28. And it's my understanding, he, he wanted a million dollars to drive the car, which is kind of, I chuckle now because <laughs> there's guys that's never even finished in the top 20 that's making a million dollars now. You said it. I didn't. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Robert says, I can't offer you the 28 car. It's Ernie Irvin's car. I can offer you that 80, 88. And so that was kind of the that was kind of the deal breaker right there. He did he he wanted to drive that black twenty eight. If he could have gotten the twenty eight car, how likely? I don't know how they were ever going to deal with the salary deal. You know, them, nobody. Okay. I mean, uh, he may have been making a million dollars at three car. I don't know. That's not for me to yeah to say he was or he wasn't. But he wasn't going to make that driving for Robert Yates Racing. <laughs>
1: Hello Scene Vault Podcast listeners, this is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Vault Podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Vault Podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast, and at Qware we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out Qware and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at qwarecmms.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast.
0: Steve, after everything that had happened in 1992, I was really kind of surprised when Larry Mack said that he felt like the team got... (laughs) Fat and lazy during the offseason. Now, that's his words, not mine. Uh, He said that the team he felt like kind of got off course during the offseason and expected to go into 93 with the same kind of momentum that they had had at the end of 1992.
3: I believe Larry knew exactly what he's talking about because over the course of the offseason, he probably sensed that they had such a great feeling of accomplishment and momentum going that they really didn't have to push as hard as they had been in the past. It felt perhaps like they had earned something and it was time to, to bask in that glory, so to speak. But Larry didn't see it that way. Uh, He knew that to, to continue to do well meant the team had to be as efficient as it always has been. And he didn't sense that happening. So I believe he was a little bit worried about how, Things would go in that season, although they started off fine. They were not going well by the time Davey earned that third place finish at New Hampshire.
0: And despite the fact that Larry felt like they weren't quite up to speed, Davey did win the season's third race at Richmond. Then at Bristol, Davey got on what would seem to be a little bit of a roll. He was fifth at Bristol. He was fourth at North Wilkesboro, second at Martinsville, seventh at Talladega, But then he was 15th at Sonoma. He was 30th at Charlotte, 3rd at Dover, 6th at Pocono, then 35th at Michigan, and 31st in the 400 at Daytona. And then, Steve, he finished 3rd in the very first Winston Cup race ever held at New Hampshire. And, Steve, that was the last race that Davey Allison would ever run. Larry has said many times that when Davey lost his life, in that helicopter crash in the infield at Talladega, he didn't just lose the driver of his race car. He didn't just lose this guy that he knew from hanging around him in the garage. Certainly didn't just lose the guy that he knew from Victory Lane. He lost his very best friend. And Steve Larry Mack talked about a team meeting that they had on Thursday after Davey passed away on Tuesday. And it was just people from the team and their spouses. And it was just them consoling each other like every family would when something like that happened.
3: That was the right thing to do. It showed the closeness of that team.
0: And Steve, here is why I will always, always, always respect Larry McReynolds. Diane Wall was the scorer for that team. She was in the scoring stand and kept track of Davey's lap times and and making sure that everything was up to par there. Her husband, Gary, and their son, Mark, also scored for Winston Cup teams. Diane scored for Davey and Robert Yates Racing at the time. Gary was Jeff Gordon's scorer the first several years of his career. And Mark scored for Richard Petty when he retired. So that was kind of an interesting family to get to know. And the connection between us was that they actually lived in Yackenbo, the town where I live. So I got to know them pretty well during our time in NASCAR together. I remember, I think we've discussed on the podcast once before, me being really, 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 really sick at Sears Point one year. And Mama Diane in the garage was there to take care of me. Yeah. She mothered me through that. And I will always remember that. And then after we all got Out of NASCAR, got off the road. Obviously, I would see him around town on a fairly regular basis, just out to eat or gas station or wherever. And so that was neat to have that kind of connection. But Diane died a couple of years ago. And that was a big loss, obviously, for Gary and Mark and their family. But even though they hadn't worked together for more than 20 years, Larry McReynolds made the trip to Yackinville not only to attend Diane's funeral, but, Steve, he actually served as a pallbearer.
3: That does tell you a lot of good things about the relationship they had, that's for sure.
0: Well, I think it tells you a lot about the relationship between Larry and Diane and Mark and Gary, but it also says a lot about the bond that that race team had.
3: Well, and the interesting thing is he, that Larry did this for Diane, and as you said, it showed the bond the race team had. Now, that bond was also very, very prevalent after Davey's accident. You could sense that in the team members.
0: The decision to bring Ernie Irvin on board wasn't exactly accepted with universal open arms. <laughs> because the fact of the matter is, Ernie had definitely seen his share of controversy over the years. I think you're right on that one.
3: Swerving, <laughs> Ervin.
0: <laughs> when everything worked out and he stayed out of trouble, nobody could touch Ernie. But when things didn't and he maybe got himself in a little bit of trouble, oh, boy, watch out. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I actually stood up in the driver's meeting at there. And apologize yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for some of the actions of the past.
0: Now, can you imagine what that must've been like for Ernie?
3: Yeah, I can really imagine that. I, I think though that Ernie, uh, had an opportunity with Yates racing to erase a lot of that image that he projected to that point. So I think he was looking very much forward to racing for Robert Yates.
0: And, Steve, after Davy died, that opened up what was, of course, one of the most coveted rides in that garage area. And as things shook out, it was going to be Ernie's ride if he could get out of his contract with Morgan McClure. They actually go to Darlington. Robert Yates Racing actually went to Darlington with Ernie's seat in the car, even though Ernie hadn't gotten out of his deal with Morgan McClure yet. That got done, and Larry was happy right off the bat. Ernie ran well at Darlington, and even though the Allisons in particular hadn't been very enthusiastic about Ernie replacing Davey, according to Larry Mack, at Martinsville later that year, Ernie just completely dominated that race. I mean, he wore everybody out. And what made the difference to Larry Mack was when – Ernie came down pit road after the race on his way to victory lane, the image of Bobby Allison walking out on pit road to give Ernie the thumbs up had to have been one of the most emotional sights that Larry Mack could have possibly have experienced at that point.
3: By Bobby going out and giving the thumbs up to Ernie, two things came about. Number one, it seemed that the Allisons were no longer concerned about Ernie Irvin, uh, being able to race that car. So they must've felt comfortable with that move. And the other one was that Ernie Irvin impressed Larry Max so much that what Ernie had done in the past was forgotten at that moment. No doubt about it. This was a different Ernie Irvin.
0: And Steve, the way that Ernie ran in that car at the end of the 1993 season, he won at Martinsville. He won at Charlotte. Both of those races were just absolutely dominant. He was steering a rocket ship in those two races. Mm-hmm. Larry Mack didn't want an offseason. He, <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to head to Daytona the week after
3: the season finale in Atlanta and keep going. He was obviously feeling much better about that offseason than it was in 1993. right <laughs> evidently early in 1994
0: ernie won at richmond then he won again the very next race in atlanta he won at Sears point he nearly won the inaugural brickyard 400 and going into michigan he was just 27 points behind dell earnhardt in the standings and steve at that point it was a two-man show rusty wallace was third in points 326 points down to earnhardt And 299 behind Ernie.
3: Well, now this, to me, solidifies what Ernie expected to do with that team. Win races and be in contention for a championship. The old Ernie Irvin image is gone.
0: That Saturday morning at Michigan, Ernie has his crash. And in the course of doing this podcast, I have been blown away several times by the descriptions that people have had of certain events. But when Larry actually took us with him back to the crash site and telling about how Steve Peterson, and this is the same Steve Peterson, the NASCAR official, who was helping Ricky Craven after his Talladega crash, Steve Peterson actually stopped Larry Mack and Robert from going to Ernie's car because it didn't look good. For Larry Mack to tell us that,
3: yeah. completely
0: Had me speechless.
3: I can understand that. And I've got a story about that morning. Tom Higgins and I were on our way into the track when a car came out from the track, turned in our direction, and flew by past us. And I looked at Tom and said, did you see Robert Yates in that car? I said, what do you think he's going? Yeah. So Yates was on his way to the hospital. He wasn't the only one. We had no idea what that was going on at that time. So he came into the media center, no action on track, very, very quiet, came into the media center and Eli Gold, the television announcer, came up to us. and said, boy, did you guys hear that about Ernie? It doesn't look good. And we were just flabbergasted. And of course we had to find out what went on, but man, what a way to come to work. Huh.
0: And Steve, I absolutely respect Larry Mack for his kindness toward Diane Wall and her family after we lost her. But then in the aftermath of Ernie's accident, he was getting some offers to maybe move over because how much more could any one person take? He'd went through 92. He'd went through 93. Here he was in 94 and his driver is hurt, seriously hurt and his future was in jeopardy, but he was filling some offers and he told them that he was going to stay put because he had promised Ernie that he would be there when Ernie was able to come back,
3: which I think was the best thing he could possibly do. We have talked about Larry Max bonding with, uh, Davey and, uh, obviously people that work for him, such as Diane. And this was the bond he had with Ernie. Ernie was at the top of his game and he wanted to be there. When Ernie came back to let him know, Hey. We welcome you back. You've been doing great. We want to be a part of your future success. And that's why I think he turned down those offers.
0: Larry Mack did stay put and Ernie did eventually get out of the hospital. They go to the banquet at the end of the year and they're sitting there in a suite at the Waldorf talking about what they're going to do the next year when it comes to a driver. And Ernie was like, that's my car.
3: (laughs) I can't blame him.
0: You can't blame him, but the fact is he was still dealing with some injuries that he had sustained at Michigan. Uh, He had the eye patch at that time, and he actually wanted to make his comeback in the Daytona 500. And according to what Larry Max said, the conversation got kind of, I don't know if it was heated, but it got kind of pointed, and they were talking pretty seriously about some things. And Ernie's actually playing the – I've got a contract card saying that he was the driver of the 28
3: car. So he was playing some hardball there. He was playing hardball at that point because he had some concerns that anybody else driving that car and having the same success in that car could reflect on him. And he was in the deal of a lifetime and did not want to lose it.
0: I hadn't heard about this one when Larry Mack and the rest of the team went to Daytona to test with Del Jarrett, DJ actually pulled into the garage at one point. He pulled up to a van that was there in the garage, got out. Ernie Irvin got in and took a few laps around the racetrack. (laughs) And he hadn't even been released by the doctors yet. And there he was tooling around Daytona.
3: Taking some kind of chance there, I would say.
0: I I would say that Larry Mack (laughs) was pretty tight. I would say that he was very tight until Ernie got back to the garage. The 1995 season started out very, very poorly for Del Jarrett. And I was at scene by this time. And my very first cover story in Winston Cup scene was on Del Jarrett's struggles at Robert Yates Racing. And there was talk basically that Del Jarrett couldn't drive a race car. And, Steve, this was two years, two years removed from him winning the Daytona 500 and passing Dale Earnhardt to do it.
3: Dale, jet couldn't drive a race car. I got news for you. Well, it's not news. You probably know all this. But you know where most of that talk came from? Well... <laughs>
0: I, would, I would say that his initials were EI. You might be just right.
3: Oh, you said it. I didn't. Well, Ernie Irvin would say, and he said it in public, that Dale Jarrett couldn't drive a loose race car. Well, I've heard that about three or four times, and finally I went up to DJ and I said, Ernie says you can't drive a loose race car. And Dale looked at me and said, hell, nobody can drive a loose race car. So he knew what was going on.
0: I will say this. I don't necessarily think that Ernie Irvin went out of his way to make things easier
3: for Dale. I think you're right on that one.
0: (laughs) And when it came to Larry Mack and DJ, Larry Mack was like, hey, we've won races. We've sat on poles and it's up to you to figure out how to drive the race car that we put under you. And so I can see 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 his point. And so even though Ernie might not have been exactly supportive, I think there was a little bit of pushback from Larry Mack as well. And he said as much in the interview, it was so bad at one point in 1995 that Larry Mack just about quit.
3: Absolutely frustrated. Really. There's Ernie on one side and t- telling DJ on the other side, and the results are what they should have been. Nurse perpetuating the fact that DJ can't drive, trying to protect his ride. I mean, it, it, it's a horn's nest.
0: It was so bad that they got Hutt Strickland to get in the car at Charlotte to get his feedback. And that turned out to be exactly what they needed because Hutt came back in and he said, This, 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 and this is wrong with the car. And maybe this, you could do this, this, and this better. And it evidently confirmed that DJ knew what he was talking about after all. Here's another what if. I did not know that DJ planned to start his own cup team. And he took the deal with Robert Yates Racing, knowing that it was only going to be a one-year deal in the 28 car. So his plan evidently was to get his foot in the door with Ford and Robert Yates engines. And he also had a letter of intent from Hooters. To I the know, team.
3: I didn't know that.
0: That's according to Larry Mack. Again, it's another one of those what if scenarios that we've heard about so often here on the podcast. Now at the same time, Ford was wanting Robert Yates to start a second team. And even though Robert was kind of reluctant, he eventually pulled the trigger and created the 88 team. But who's going to drive it? The (laughs) plot thickens. (laughs) Is it going to be Dale Jarrett? Or is it going to be this guy making a monumental, titanic, epic move that would have turned the sport again completely Sideways
3: now, you talk about melodrama. (laughs)
0: Who Dell Earnhardt making the move over from Richard Childress racing to Robert Yates racing? Let that one lean on you for a second. (laughs) 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 Dell Earnhardt leaving RCR for RYR and leaving Chevrolet for Ford. Again, I don't know how serious the conversations were. But for Larry McReynolds to go on the record and say that the conversations were actually there, that is something
3: absolutely flabbergasting. Now I know Dale Earnhardt had no love whatsoever for Ford. I mean, he would joke about Fords privately to me. Come up with uh F O R D means fix or repair dating. Now he went a bit beyond that, and I can't repeat what he <laughs> said. <laughs> But that's how much he did not like Ford. I, I just find this incredible.
0: According to Larry Mack, Dale wanted the 28 car, and he would not hear of going to the 88. And, Steve, he wanted a million dollars a year. Oh, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. <laughs> a million dollars a year. Now, Larry Mack said that, you know, the 28, the 88, that might have been negotiable. But he kind of laughed and he said, ain't nobody going to get a million dollars from Robert Yates racing. (laughs) (laughs) But Steve, imagine a world where Dale Earnhardt was in the 28 car.
3: Well, if he was getting a million dollars a year. Yeah. I don't blame him for going to the 28 car, but that was not going to happen.
0: I would have driven it for half that. (laughs) steve follow brian kelb on instagram and twitter at speedway screens and check out his inventory at speedway and steve brian has had a chance to go through that inventory of the memorabilia shop that he bought out not long ago right and the stuff that he is posting is just absolutely fantastic there were at least Two or three Rick Mast t shirts. There were some Harry Gantt t shirts, of course, Dale Earnhardt, Richard Petty, Bill Elliott. So, if you want a t shirt of a 1980s, 1990s driver, Brian can get you
3: hooked up. Well, Brian knows where to go to get this stuff, and it's a gold mine every time he does it.
0: Steve, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at Speedway com That's Speedway. TSJ.ETSY.com. Steve, the November 3rd, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene carried your column on Maurice Petty, Maurice Petty. The pit crew for Joe Rutman's team, which was owned by Dr. Ron Benfield, won that year's pit crew championship at Rockingham. They were honored with a dinner, and Morris Petty showed up, although more than a few people evidently expected him to skip the event because of what had happened at Charlotte. And I love the headline over your column, and it read, Morris Petty survives the storm with dignity. This is part of what you wrote. More than a few were surprised. Some even shied away from him, fearing that his mood might be dark. Hardly. He was amiable and talkative. He laughed. He joked. He got up from his seat at the head table and wandered over to another table occupied by members of the media and had them roaring in only moments. He playfully badgered the pianist who was occupied with light dinner music tunes demanding to hear a chorus or two of Willie Nelson's Whiskey (laughs) River take my mind. His fellow NASCAR Winston Cup mechanics in attendance were happy to see him in old form. They understood what it must have been like for him. He had been at the center of the storm, the man accused of supplying the blatantly oversized illegal engine, which powered his celebrated brother to victory, and later meant a 35 thousand dollar fine and the loss of 104 winston cup points
3: well when i saw morris acting the way he was i was totally surprised because i was among the many that thought he would skip the event and just hole up in petty enterprises and just not show his face that was far removed from what actually happened that night now when i saw that i made it a point to go and speak to him Normally, I might not have done that had he been in some other type of mood, but I went up to him, and before I could ask him the first question, Rich, he looked at me and said, yeah, I did it. I did it. Everybody <laughs> thinks that Rich was involved in it. He wasn't, and I want to tell you why I did it. I did it because I was tired of seeing us lose two teams that were blatantly breaking the rules every week. I just wanted to get it past me, and I want everybody to know that I did it. I mean, he came right out and confessed in so many words. that I hadn't even asked him a question, and he was telling me what it was about. And he said, you know something? He started to joke a little bit more. He said, I might lose my job over this, and he was laughing about it. But that doesn't make any difference. Even if I'm on a different team than Richard, he's still my brother, and I love him. And I'll do anything for him that I can do. Where he is and where I am doesn't make any difference. Well, I just thought that that was just tremendous for him to say that. Now, something in the back of my head was asking me a few cynical questions. In other words, was Morris put up to it? In other words, was he told by Richard that he has got to go and take the blame for this thing so Richard doesn't look bad? i don't know that if richard would ever do that but i got news for you knowing morris the way i did if richard had asked him to do that morris was too proud and too stubborn and hard-headed to accept that he never would have done it had richard asked him to do it so i didn't believe that richard asked him to do it i think morris came out and said what he said because he really really felt that way so i wrote in so many words that while he did break the rules and bring all this down willingly willingly upon himself, you have to admire the man. And that's the way I ended that column. Now, I remember that because it was about a week later at a speedway. Morris came up to me and he smiled. He didn't say anything at first. He just came up to me, he smiled, he shook my hand. And I was looking and I was about ready to speak again. But before I could, he said, Thank you, and you know what I'm talking about. And he walked away. Wow. that that has remained with me forever, but it was it was a very interesting piece to write because everything just fell into place. I got the exact feeling from Morse about that incident, and I got exactly what he felt about it, and I got exactly how he responded to it, and he did not brush off any blame or accuse anyone else of anything. He put it all on himself. That is something you don't see week in and week out in NASCAR.
0: Steve, Saturday, you did tweet that you learned quickly as a racing rider. If chief liked you and trusted you, which had to be earned, you had no better friend or source.
3: Well, let's put it this way. Richard Petty is perhaps the most open and accessible professional athlete in this country, even to this day. Now, his crew chief, Dale Inman, wasn't that way. Dale was very shy of the press, but Dale had a very, very good side to him. And you know that by talking with him. And when you got to know him and got to be uh, trusted, He he would open up to you. He'd be a friend to you. You could get whatever you wanted out of him. Well, it was the same way with Chief. Every time I saw Chief at the trap, he was very busy. He was always working. He was doing something. And I felt like, oh, this guy doesn't really have a lot of interest in courting the press. And he didn't. But once we went and talked to him, a few of us, and, and got to know him a little bit better, then... He started to trust you just as Dale started to trust you. It was the same scenario. So, once that happened, I was fortunate enough just to be able to go up to him and start talking. And I'd ask him about issues of the day. And did I ever get <laughs> hear full from him? Because he was always right there. And oh my gosh, he could say, Well, I can tell you what's going on here, and I can tell you what's going on there. And Dale would do the same thing. You did not ever want to violate that trust because, you know, most likely you'd never speak to Chief or Dale again. But given that, uh, it was a good relationship that I had with Dale and with Chief. I think that is part of the reason why Chief didn't mind speaking to me that night in Rockingham, coming right out and saying what he meant and saying what he felt. And it was because we did have that kind of relationship that it came out that way.
0: Steve, what do you think it meant to Morris to be elected to the NASCAR Hall of Fame?
3: Oh, I think it's just like it felt for Dale. I mean, it was just a great honor to be recognized when, in fact, I sort of think Chief might not have expected it at all. You know, it might have been a situation that he, a part of him says, well, they've taken Richard and they've taken Dale uh, and that's going to be it. But no, his record as an engine builder for his brother speaks for itself. But I maintain that chief was the backbone of that team. I really think that he was the foundation upon which Richard and Dale built. I think it would have been an entirely different situation internally in petty enterprises had chief not been there. I think he was a, pretty demanding taskmaster because I think he was something of a perfectionist at his work. And he wanted to see guys on the team strive for perfection like he did. So I think all that formed the foundation of Eddie Enterprises. And people probably recognized that when it came to inducting him into the Hall of Fame. Well, I'll tell you why I think that Chief was the backbone of the team. I was standing in the petty pits one time and I was talking with one of the crewmen might've been Wade Thornton. I can't remember. But, uh, I said, well, you guys look put, after joking around, I said, you guys look pretty organized for once. So who's in charge here? And I was smiling about it, just joking about it. And that crewman looked at me dead in the eye and said, you'll find out who's in charge when chief gets here. <laughs> There's a lot, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> Hi, I'm Ray Everham, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, here is my weekly accountability update. I now stand (laughs) at 4,815.38 miles, and that leaves me 184.62 miles short of 5,000 lifetime miles. You're getting there.
3: (laughs) Keep on hiking.
0: Now, Steve, I have to relate this story. All right. Before anybody thinks that I'm getting to be such a hardcore super jock, there is a lady that lives in town in Yakonville, and of the six days that I walk, I see Maxine Wooten probably three or four of those days. One day last week, I was walking along, had just passed her house, and from behind me, I felt somebody about to pass me, (laughs) and it scared the crap out of me, and it was Maxine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed and she said, now don't run me over. Don't hit me. <laughs> and then she went on. We were headed in the same direction and she passed me like I was sitting still. <laughs> that a girl, Maxine. And every time that we see each other, we stop and we talk and we chat and everything. And she asked me about Janie cause she actually used to work in the, the clerk of court's office. So she knows right. Janie from court and all that. Well, anyway, Maxine passed me and left me sit, left me standing. Okay. And as she was starting to walk on, I told her, I said, man, it does my heart good to get passed by a 70 year old woman. <laughs> and she stopped and she turned around and she said, Rick, yesterday was my 87th
3: birthday. <laughs> <Good> Lord. <laughs> 87 year old Maxine. 87 year old. (laughs) -old.
0: (laughs) And Steve, in the next 10, 15 minutes, she was so far ahead of me, I couldn't
3: hardly see her. Uh, You're right. You're right, Rick. You are not any super athlete.
0: (laughs) Now, before anybody starts being all haughty and ugly and making fun of Rick being slow. I'm faster than they are sitting on the couch.
3: Okay? <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> that's me on that couch. <laughs> Glad we finally got to
0: put the period on it. Man, I appreciate you. I, I really do. Um,
2: not everybody would have done this. Right. It's, so. Sometimes it's good to get it back out there.